The following lecture was delivered at the 10th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Washington, D.C., a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Yitzchak Breiterwitz will now present a lecture entitled Brain Death and Organ Transplants. topic we're going to talk about uh, is organ donation, a very, very important uh, branch of medicine that has shown tremendous uh, promise uh, in recent uh, decades. Uh, some people call it spare part surgery and, and the like. And uh, the truth of the matter is that even in secular society, whether it's Jews or non-Jews, rates of organ donation are fairly low. But among Orthodox Jews, it's even a little bit lower. Uh, okay, it's a it's a bit it's a little bit lower than the average. You may have heard that there is an organization called the Halachic Organ Donor Society, HODS, that was established by a fellow, uh, Rabbi Berman, and this was in the aftermath of the tragic death of a young woman in Israel, Eliza Fleda, who was an American student spending a year in Israel, and uh, she was blown up in a terrorist attack, and her family decided to donate her organs, I believe, to five different people, and five people lived, and as a result, the parents became very enthusiastic about the cause of organ donation, and Rabbi Berman uh, is an advocate who developed halachic uh, sources and the like, and if you check the website, you will see many, many articles, pro and con, including stuff I wrote, uh, you know, again, which is actually does not support his position, does, as you will see, but, but uh, nevertheless, it is a resource, an educational resource that you can check. It's HODS, yeah, I think it's dot, dot org. Uh, so uh, I'm not here to give you any, any concrete halakhic answers. I think all of the speakers here will tell you that we are not here to give you practical halachic responses. You have to have your rabbi who knows you, and every case is going to be different. But I'm here just to give you uh, kind of the general principles and uh, to be uh, what you might call a halachic journalist to simply record uh, the different, different views. Now, when we analyze organ donation, I want to focus on three types of organ donation. One is live organ donation. The other is cadaveric organ donation, which is the other extreme. And the third, which will be the most controversial, is the quasi-dead and alive, uh, the issue of brain death and the like. Let's first talk about live organ donation. Now, obviously, there are many organs you cannot give while you're alive and still remain alive, right? I can't decide I'd like to give my heart. Sometimes we give our heart to our spouses or whatever it is, but, but, but in, a, in a physical sense, I give away my heart, I'm not alive anymore. Uh, so the most common source of a live organ donor is of course a kidney, because uh, the Almighty made us with two kidneys, and we are able to function with one. It is also possible to give a partial liver donation. The liver can regenerate uh, with as little as 20% of the liver, so it is indeed possible to be a partial liver a donor and the like. So what are the halachic issues, if any, if I want to donate a kidney or I want to donate part of my liver? Does halacha permit me to make that decision? Does it say that I must make that decision or, or not? So 
Without going through all of the sources, I just want to tell you the bottom line halachically is that halacha never requires you to give up a vital organ. Halacha does not say, I must give a kidney, even if somebody would die unless I make that decision. And the reason is that although there is a great mitzvah to save somebody's life, you are not obligated to save somebody's life by putting yourself at risk. And at least the halachic consensus, I, I know that some physicians might dispute this, but the halachic consensus is that any donation of a vital organ, like a kidney, even if technically one might be extra, or a, a liver, is increasing one's risk uh, significantly, although obviously you can take all sorts of safeguards. And as a result, based on halachic principle, one is not obligated to rescue another person if that is going to put their own life at risk, even if the risk is not tremendously significant. So as a, as a result, therefore, we would never regard donation of a kidney as mandatory, but it is treated as something meritorious. It is what you might call a non-obligatory mitzvah. There is a concept in which you're doing a good deed, but it's not a good deed that you can be forced to do or be obligated to do. Now, this has some very interesting repercussions. Number one, if it is in the realm of a good deed as opposed to an obligation, then in deciding whether to do it, you must take into account other priorities. So for example, the young mother with children who decides she would like to give a kidney might very well be discouraged from making that decision because she might be putting her own children at risk of not having a mother that will be capable of taking care of them. A single unattached person might be in a better position. In other words, once it's not in the realm of an obligation, once it's in the realm of an aspiration or meritorious, then you have to consider how it fits in with other things. But there's another fascinating difference, and this was a case that actually arose in Israel. Uh, there was a teenage boy who needed a kidney transplant, and obviously, because of rejection, you always have to have a compatible donor. And there was no compatible donor. The only compatible donor was a sibling who was below the age of bar mitzvah. So the sibling was technically a minor. So let's make up an age. The kid was 11 years old. The 11-year-old child wanted to give the kidney. His parents wanted him to give the kidney. And yet, uh, this was submitted to uh, uh, rabbis. And the rabbis ruled the following. Since there is no obligation to give a kidney, because it puts you at risk, it is simply a good thing to do if you have voluntarily decided to do it. A minor is not halachically capable of consent. So the minor cannot consent to put himself at risk. Only an adult can consent to put himself or herself at risk. And parents cannot consent either, because although parents do have the authority to make medical decisions on behalf of their children, they can do so only for the benefit of the child. They cannot make a medical decision to endanger one child in order to save another child. So the psak halacha was that the minor's donation will not be accepted. And I believe, unfortunately, uh, it had a tragic ending that the older sibling, the older sibling died. Now, if this sounds barbaric to you, let me just uh, point out 
that uh, under the law of many states in the United States, that is the identical rule that organs are not accepted from minors. And keep in mind as well that the age of adulthood uh, under American law is e either 18 or for this might even be 21. So if anything, halacha would take an organ from a 13-year-old boy and a 12-year-old girl. Second of law might not take the organ till the person is 18 or even, even 21. So halacha is not stopping you from something that secular law would allow. Now, I'm not interested so much in critiquing uh, that particular halachic decision. I do think that one could have analyzed it differently. I'll just mention my, my thought on this. One could have argued that allowing a donation of a sibling to save another sibling is not only for the benefit of the recipient, it is also for the benefit of the donor. Number one, it enables the donor to have a brother, which is very significant. And number two, it eliminates, I think, what would be unjustified, but still, I think, present, a tremendous sense of guilt. I, I believe that uh, if a child goes through life knowing that he could have saved his older brother and did not do so, and again, it's not, not the child's fault if we didn't let him do it, but I think there's going to be this guilt hanging over his head. And indeed, there would also be perhaps a resentment, subconsciously at least, that the parents may have towards this child who let his brother die. Again, I understand that's irrational. So one could have analyzed it that even if I can't make a decision to endanger this child, to save this child, this might be a decision for the benefit of the donor child as well. But be it as it may, be it as it may, uh, this is an interesting uh, application of the rule that organ donation is not mandatory. It is a matter of discretion. And because it is a matter of discretion, it requires what is called informed consent. And halachically, as well as legally, minors are not capable of informed consent. Now, before I leave the live donation to talk about the other ones, I just want to point out another uh, similar case but hopefully you'll see that it's very different. This actually was uh, involved non-Jews, but we could easily ask the question, what if they would be Jewish? This was the well-known Ayala case that has been written up in journals, and I think there was a movie on it as well. Uh, teenage girl had leukemia, needed a bone marrow transplant. There were no compatible donors on the bone marrow registry. Neither parent was compatible. There were no other children. So mom and dad said, why don't we try to make a baby, and maybe the baby will be a compatible donor. Now, this was quite an amazing story. Uh, dad had just had a vasectomy, so that would have to be surgically reversed. They didn't want to use artificial insemination. Uh, mom was undergoing chemotherapy for uh, breast cancer, so she had to get the drugs out of her system and be in remission before a pregnancy could be attempted. Mom was also over 40, which anyway re you know, sharply reduces the pregnancy. And with, even if under the best conditions, who says the kid will be compatible if neither parent was compatible? You, know, you, don't, you don't know what you're going to get. This is before the age of cloning, so you really couldn't necessarily determine with precision what type of genetic construct you're going to get. But Hashem was good. Hashem was always good, but Hashem was openly good to them. Vasectomy was surgically reversed. Mom went into remission. Mom got pregnant. And lo and behold, baby Marissa was a perfect genetic match for older sister Anissa. Maybe the names are reversed, but I think that's what it was. And this was almost 20 years ago. 
and everybody is doing great. It was successful. Marrow was taken from the baby in the first few weeks after birth. They took the marrow of a newborn of a newborn baby. Now, I tell the story often because it's a great story, but somebody pointed out to me, <laughs> it just shows you everything has a, in America it turns into a lawsuit, that apparently uh, baby Marissa, who is now, whatever it is, 21, brought a lawsuit against her parents for unlawful battery for uh, assaulting her. Okay, but <laughs> I'm not sure exactly uh, what she was hoping to gain. But okay, but putting that aside, the question I just want you to ponder is this. If I just told you that halacha says you cannot take a kidney from an 11-year-old boy who wants to give it, would you be allowed to take bone marrow from a six-week-old baby who certainly did not consent to give the bone marrow, would there be a difference yeah. between the uh, removal of the kidney and the obtaining of the bone marrow? Again, in other words, if both questions would go to a halachic authority, would they be treated the same, or would the halachic authority validate one and invalidate the other? Uh, the key is not how old a person is. The key is that no person is obligated to put themselves at risk, at danger. Uh, risk when you only have one kidney and, and the kidney that's removed is not going to grow back. So there is a risk because you're putting the entire strain of the body on a single kidney. Uh, bone marrow, now I'm not going to say it's risk-free because there's the risk of any surgical procedure under general anesthesia, particularly for a newborn uh, baby where you know, it could take a little bit too much. Okay, okay, that's even better, that's even better. Right, so 100% so correct. The requirement of the informed consent is going to the danger aspect of the operation, and consequently, halacha would indeed differentiate between bone marrow and certainly blood transfusions uh, versus removal of, of vital organs. Okay, so that's kind of the general idea of live organs. Now, the other extreme is cadaveric. Cadaveric, I mean dead, 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 a body that's ready to be buried in the ground. Now, cadaveric, pure cadaveric organ donations are not so easy to get because vital organs generally deteriorate very, very quickly. That's why we have brain death and other standards. So you really can't get a heart or a liver from a cadaver that's ready to be buried in the cemetery. But some things you can get. Uh, you could get uh, eyes sometimes for eye banks. You can get skin for skin grafts and the like. Uh, so are there halachic issues about cadaveric organ donation? What would the halachic issue be? So here, people say that, well, there are commandments in the Torah that dead bodies are supposed to be buried. That is why we have laws against cremation, which, by the way, is a very, very important law. Uh, I. You know, if, if any of you have a relative that wants to be cremated, uh, you either try to talk them out of it, or even after they die, if there's any way you could prevent the cremation, you're doing a great, great mitzvah. And I, I tell people that uh, even if you promised and you swore on a Bible uh, that you will honor a request for cremation, feel perfectly free to ignore uh, your oath or, or whatever it is. Uh, so we have rules against cremation, we have requirements of burial, we don't like mausoleums, we are generally against autopsies, and that'll sometimes create a conflict when the coroner requires an autopsy and you need to get a religious exemption. So as a result, 
to simply take organs from dead bodies might on its face be a violation of these laws against burial, autopsy, cremation, because uh, God told Adam after the sin, you are made from dust and you must return to the dust of the earth. However, let me point out that uh, people also make the argument, which is not a true argument, uh, but people will make the argument that because Judaism believes in resurrection of the dead, if you cut into bodies and there's not going to be body parts there, uh, then resurrection will become impossible. Now, this is a commonly stated argument. I want to state it, I want to state right at the outset that that is, uh, that is not a valid argument. And the reason why it's not a valid argument is that resurrection of the dead is a miraculous process. So, I mean, by the time resurrection comes, most bodies are going to be decomposed anyway. So to say that if somebody took away a finger or something, there's not going to be resurrection wouldn't, wouldn't be true. And what about uh, victims of Nazi uh, cremation and the like? Uh, certainly, they're going to be resurrected. So putting aside resurrection of the dead, which is not an issue, and I will tell you that it's not an issue, but still, is the organ donation a violation of autopsy rules? The answer is, by and large, not for the following reason. Yes, it is true we're not supposed to cut into corpses. Yes, it is true we don't desecrate bodies. Yes, it is true we're supposed to bury Jewish dead. But if, in order to save a life, we could take part of a body to save a life, the same way you violate the Shabbos, and you violate the Yom Kippur, and you violate the laws of kosher, to save a life, you can certainly violate the laws of cutting into corpses in order to save a life. There is a, 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 a number of, of responsa that autopsies are permitted if, for example, there is a suspicion that somebody is a victim of a violent crime, and by doing the autopsy, we can get evidence that will lead to the, may lead to the apprehension of the perpetrator, since murderers are likely to commit mayhem again. So that's called pikuach nefesh, potential life-saving. And that might also be true in terms of diseases, uh, if this could lead to uh, helping people who would be victims of, of diseases. If, if there's a real threat of a murderer out there, then it would actually be required in such a case, if, if the evidence could not be obtained any other, any other way. By the way, I, I am not a big expert in the science here, but there are developments in <coughs> autopsies themselves that mean they don't have to be as invasive as they were. There, there are various different types of imaging that they can do. So an autopsy today doesn't have to be, you know, total desecration and violation of a, of a body. So one needs to be aware of, of those different, different options. There might be needle biopsies and the like. But the only question is, given the fact that cadaveric organ donors, uh, donations would be eyes and the like, one might raise the question, well, wait a second. Is that saving a life? It's not a vital, it's not like a heart. Uh, eyes, skin, are you saving a life? Because remember, if you're not saving a life, then that's going to be forbidden. It's only saving a life. So here we do have uh, some interesting responsa of Rav Unterman, uh, the form, a, for, a former chief rabbi of Israel, who actually made the point that we treat blindness as a life-threatening condition. It's, it's very, very interesting that although technically a person can live as a blind person, although it's a handicap and a difficulty. 
But a person that's blind is exposed to all sorts of dangers. A person that crosses the street and doesn't hear a bus or whatever it is. So if all you need is the pikuach nefesh trigger, blindness or potential blindness would be enough to be a pikuach nefesh trigger. A skin would be the same thing. Uh, if the skin will go to burn victims and the like, that's certainly a like, it could be a life-threatening situation. So there may be justifications. Now, the issue of uh, cadaveric organ donations to non-Jews does raise a very fascinating question because technically the special rule that to save a life I can violate the Torah applies technically to save Jewish lives. Uh, I don't violate the Torah to save a non-Jewish life. Again, that, that raises a significant problem. Uh, all I can tell you is that some authorities, some authorities, in particular Rabbi uh, Moshe Tendler, who is a... Uh, I'm sorry, didn't you? Well, that is a very excellent, uh, that is an excellent question. Uh, it, everyone is made in the image of God. There is no question. Non-Jews are made in the image of God, but the idea of violating the Torah is to facilitate people who will observe the Torah, etc. Uh, but Rabbi Tender did make the argument that even non-Jewish uh, recipients would justify uh, a cadaveric organ donation because he developed an idea based on the Gemara. It's not his idea, it's in the Gemara itself, that if we don't participate in the healing of non-Jews on an equal basis, that will generate hatred and resentments, and the Jewish people will ultimately uh, suffer. And therefore, because of this concept, he says we don't make a differentiation. Okay. So now, though, I want to come to the real critical difficult issue. And the real critical uh, difficult issue is the issue of vital organs such as heart and, you know, liver if you're not taking it from a live person. And here is the problem. Nobody would allow removal of the heart from a live person, right? That's obvious. We would call that murder, right? Taking a heart from a live person will not be allowed. You can't kill one person to save another person. On the other hand, if you wait until a person was dead in the old-fashioned classical sense, the heart would generally not be suitable for transplantation. If you looked at a law dictionary 50 years ago, Black's Law Dictionary, look under death. What is the legal definition? Legal now, not halachic. The legal definition of when somebody is dead it would read something like this. The irreversible, that's a very important phrase, irreversible cessation of vital signs, including respiration and circulation of blood. So generally speaking, those two went together. No breathing, no pulse, no heartbeat, irreversible, can't bring it back, dead. Problem is, under that classic definition, you typically could not do a heart transplant because the heart muscle deteriorates. Now, heart transplants, I think the first heart transplants were, what, 67 or, or 68? Uh, mm -hmm. There was Dr. Christian Barnard in uh, Cape Town, and then Michael DeBakey and, and, and various other people. Uh, and initially, by the way, the, 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 initially the heart transplants uh, were so experimental they were only doing it on people whose death was very imminent, but the truth is they died faster, meaning they would die in a week, and with the transplant they died in a day, but it was worth it, you know, because... Uh, but Baruch Hashem, over time, uh, transplantation surgery uh, has 
been quite successful, and people could live sometimes five, more than five years, uh, even up to 10 years and the like, which is not inconsequential to have 10 extra years of, of life. But here is the problem. The problem is that under the conventional definition of death, heart transplantation would be impossible. So what happened starting in the early 70s was a gradual redefinition legally. I'm not, remember, I'm not speaking halakhically now. I'm going to get to the halakha. There's a legal redefinition of death, state by state, country by country, which moved away from the irreversible cessation of both respiration and circulatory function. And based on what are called the Harvard criteria, criteria that were first developed in the Harvard Medical School in the early 1970s, developed an idea that is called brain death. Now, this is a term, again, I, if, I'm speak, I'm speaking to, if I'm speaking to physicians, I, uh, and I apologize for uh, making something a bit simpler than, than it should be. But this is a term that goes by many, many different terms. It could be called neurological death. It could be called brain death. It could be called whole brain death. It could be called brain stem death. A lot of different terms. But it's very important for a layperson to understand, do not confuse brain death with people in comas or in a persistent vegetative state. A person in a coma, and that itself can have many, many meanings, may lack, may lack consciousness, may lack awareness, may lack ability to think and communicate, but their brain stem is still functioning and is still controlling the autonomous functions of the body like digestion and respiration. That's right, right. Terry Schiavo, if you remember her, uh, she was in a coma for more than 15 years, but she was not on a respirator. Uh, she needed artificial nutrition, obviously, because she, she wasn't awake to eat, but her body would process nutrients. Now, someone like Terry Schiavo, a persistent vegetative state, is not brain dead in a legal sense. And although Terry Schiavo was allowed to starve to death, that's another discussion, uh, but if somebody were to shoot Sherry Chivo, there is no Sherry Chivo, there's no question they would go on trial for murder because she was legally alive and she was halakhically alive. That is not what brain death is. Brain death is something much more. Brain death is a neurological determination that even the brain stem that covers autonomous functioning is no longer there. That means respiration is not present. Oxygen can be supplied only mechanically. But because the heart has its own pacemaker, it's very interesting, theoretically, as long as there's a supply of oxygen, the heartbeat, the heart can continue to pump. It is therefore, you know, it is, there's circulation of blood, oxygenated blood. The oxygen is mechanical. And we cut into that beating heart and we have a fresh heart taken from a person who is now defined legally as dead, even though the heart is beating. Now, it's fascinating that you can trace the redefinition of death with the growth of heart transplants. It is almost a one-to-one -one correlation. Now, that itself, I think, gives us some ethical cause, because ethical concern, because essentially, you're redefining your terms 
in order to achieve a desirable result. You know, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, you know, the co-discoverer of DNA, uh, James Watson, was once trying to address the problem of how society should deal with defective newborns. Because we, we live in a society, unfortunately, which legitimates abortion, but does not legitimate infanticide. So if you did any amniocentesis and there's a defective child, again, this is not halacha, but you know, secular society says abort. But if Nebuch, you didn't discover the problem till after birth, you're stuck. So this is what Watson suggested. Let us define birth as a child is born 72 hours after emergence from the womb. So, if we kill a baby within 72 hours after birth, that's not infanticide, that's just late-term abortion. Because we've defined birth to be 72 hours after emergence. Now, that's crazy. There was like a cartoon that said a parent wanted to, uh, was, uh, was very angry at a child, so the parent like killed the child. Yeah, it was a car car crazy cartoon. And uh, basically said, this is a late abortion in the 650th month. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't really avoid ethical problems by redefining terms, but that's exactly what happened in the brain death issue. In other words, brain death until recently, I'll mention some alternative protocols. Brain death is the legal mechanism that makes heart transplantation possible. Somebody that 100 years ago would have been defined as alive is now legally dead, and we can take away the organ. So the $64,000 question is, what definition of death does Judaism accept? Now, I can give you a spiritual definition of death, but that's not going to answer you medically. Spiritually, death occurs when the divine soul leaves the body. That's wonderful. But since we cannot observe that directly, we can only use physiological signs to indicate death. So does halacha regard death as occurring when there's a, a destruction of respiratory capacity, which is brainstem death? Or does halacha regard a person as dead only when irreversibly the heart has stopped beating and there is no longer circulation of blood? Now, this is a very tough question because if halacha accepts brain death as death, then organ donation becomes a great mitzvah because you're cutting into a dead person in order to save a life. If halacha does not accept brain death as death, then instead of the great mitzvah of saving a life, you're committing a sin of murder, and you're not allowed to murder. See, this is very different than people think. The, even the average Orthodox Jew thinks the whole problem of organ donation is autopsies and everything else. That's not really a big problem. Those laws would be waived to save a life. The real problem is What's the definition of death? Because potentially, you might be committing a murder, and that's serious stuff. Philosophically, we, we could have a bit, a bit of a discussion, because I, I understand that you know, one might legitimately question what purpose is, is, is someone like Terry Schiavo serving? Uh, in you know, why is that human life? But, but the only point I want to make is that halacha, I mentioned this the other day, uh, halacha does not assess the value of human life based on its uh, quality, 
because we would then get into all sorts of issues about Alzheimer's and, and severe mental disabilities. So essentially, we, we do look at mere biology as enough, but the question becomes respiration or circulation of blood. We don't have time to go over all the proofs. I just want to mention a few proof texts in which move in different ways. One proof text that is cited is from the Chumash, from the, Gen the book of Genesis, that when God created Adam, the verse said, God breathed into Adam the spirit of life, and Adam became a live soul. According to that interpretation, the definition of human life, the presence of the soul, is measured by respiratory capacity, by the ability to breathe. As long as there is breathing, someone is alive. Since a brain-dead person, by definition, does not have inherent respiratory capacity, they might be halakhically dead. On the other end, I just want to say that that raises tremendous problems because there are people who, who are not brain-dead who may also lack in uh, autonomous respiratory capacity. The, the outstanding example is, of course, ALS, a person with advanced Lou Gehrig's disease. <laughs> is, uh, the person might be conscious, the person is aware, the person is awake, the person, to some degree, might, might be communicative. But if they need an iron lung or they need a, a, a permanent respirator and they have no, right, no one's going to say they're dead. So you have to be very careful. There is a slippery slope here that if you're going to use respiration as a sine qua non for human life, you're going to have a lot of places other than the comatose brain dead patient where you're going to have to face that question. But this is a, a position that Rabbi Tendler has taken. Uh, there in Lou Gehrig, yeah. it is a secondary respiratory failure. Yes. Brain death is primary respiratory failure. I, 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 yeah, I, I do understand there, there is a difference. On the other hand, if you're looking at the action of breathing as opposed to the source of it, so even the secondary failure still has that consequence. Correct, but those patients are able to trigger it. They are able to trigger the breath because they're constantly Right, right. It's, it's the muscles, right, right. Uh, yeah. Neuromuscular yes, junction. yes, yes, so yes. You can sense the triggering. Yeah, okay. With, mm -hmm. uh, uh, with uh, brainstem, there is no triggering. Okay, that, that, that's fair enough. That, you know, that, that I think uh, might, might be a, a plausible distinction. Uh, there is another text in Tractate Yuma, this is in the Gemara, that talks about if a building of a bunch of bricks fell on a person and we are violating the Shabbat in order to rescue them. So it says if we uncover their nose, let's say we're, you know, the, the, the uncovering is from the head towards the heart, if we uncover the nose and we detect there is no breathing, we declare the person dead even before we reach the heart and determine the existence of a, of a pulse. Some want to indicate that that suggests that breathing is a criteria. Although I want to suggest once again, that in the absence of a respirator, which they didn't have in those days, uh, this proves nothing because in the olden days, you know, without a respirator, if you're not breathing, you're not going to have heartbeat either. So, so in a sense, you really have not separated them out in that way. A third text is a Mishnah in Tractate Ohalot uh, that talks about decapitation. And it emphasizes that when an animal is decapitated, it is halachically dead, although it is still convulsing neurologically because there is no longer a respiratory capacity. 
And Rabbi Tendler has argued, in a kind of elegant phrase, I like this phrase, that brain death might be described as physiological decapitation, although there is no anatomical decapitation. So the head might be stuck there, but physiologically there is no, no connection. So those are the proof texts that would support a brain-dead definition. And that is why Rabbi Moshe Tendler has said that in his view, organ donation is a great mitzvah because halacha would validate brain death. However, many other opinions of very, very great rabbis have strenuously argued with him. Uh, some have argued on the basis of the fact that brain death is not necessarily total brain death. For example, brain dead people, people who go through neurological tests for brain death, still have body temperature. Now that does indicate the hypothalamus or there's something in the brain. Now maybe there's no respiratory response. That may be true, but there's some residual brain function. So, so some have questioned the finality of brain death. Others have said that even if there is brain death, as long as the heart is beating, the person is alive because Leviticus talks about the nefesh, the soul, being located in the blood. Now because of this, all I can tell you is, and again, I, I understand your frustration if every time I talk I tell you it's an argument, <laughs> but it happens to be, that the issue of whether, and that you can't be neutral here, organ donation is either one of the greatest mitzvot you can do, or it's one of the greatest sins that you can commit. There's no neutrality here, because if brain death is halachic death, Organ donation is giving the gift of life, and that's a wonderful mitzvah. If brain death is not halachic death, then you're killing somebody, and you're committing murder, uh, and that is not justified. And as I say, all I can tell you is that uh, it is a very, very strong debate in halacha, and there are many technical proofs and discussions going back and forth on this. Uh, because of this, again, you have to talk to your... Uh, your uh, local Orthodox rabbi. Uh, now, there are some promising avenues that are going to make this better, though. And th this I have to tell you. And that is, recently, I think it was in New Zealand, I I'm not sure, I don't remember anymore, uh, they were able to transplant what they called the dead heart, meaning to say that somehow, after cadaveric death, after cardiac arrest, they were able to resuscitate a heart. This is a tremendous advance because by doing it this way, you avoid the ethical dilemmas of brain death. Another possibility is, we're not there yet, but if through stem cell and cloning, we could create whole organ systems, then we don't need live donors. Anyway, live, I, mean, I don't mean live donors, we don't need human donors. Anyway, human donors is a big problem, there's a shortage of them. Uh, even animal transplantation, which again is not to date been, been successful, but animal transplantation with appropriate genetic modifications would be perfectly good. And as I indicated, uh, even a pig heart, there would be no problem with putting in a pig heart because once it becomes part of you, it becomes Jewish and kosher and, and, and everything else. Uh, the only anecdotal concern I would raise is the fascinating phenomenon, which I think might be a pseudoscientific phenomenon, but it's recorded, of cellular memory. Have you heard about this? In other words, the notion that memories exist 
in different cells besides the brain. So as a result, you know, if you get a transplant from a piano player, you might remember how to play the piano. Uh, so God forbid, if you got a cell, an organ transplant from an animal, are you going to remember? Right, you're going to remember uh, what that was, was like. Now, let me mention, though, uh, so again, as I say, therefore, any decision to donate vital organs, one must discuss with their rabbi to understand the halakhic ramifications. Now, let me mention one other uh, aspect here, and that is uh, University of Pittsburgh, which was a great pioneer in liver transplants in particular, but recently, it's not so recent, but within the past uh, five, seven years, they developed a, a new protocol, it's not so new now, but they developed a protocol for heart transplants that would not rely on brain death. It's called no non-heart beating protocol. And essentially what that does is they, 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 they coordinate a transplantation decision with the withdrawal of life support. It's as if you have, imagine, it's a bit of a macabre scene. You have somebody that's dying. He's, he's not brain dead, he just, he's dying. His body is uh, coming and he's on life support. And, the, and through a living will or whatever it is, the family has decided they're gonna shut off life support. So if the transplantation surgeons can get there quickly enough, they can wait until cardiac arrest and in the next room, they're right there, and like a bunch of vultures, they will swoop in and, and remove it, and they wait until a declaration of uh, cardiac arrest, and then they remove the heart. And the University of Pittsburgh physicians made the argument that this is wonderful because we are not removing the heart until a total declaration of death, not using brain death criteria. The problem is, this is actually much worse than brain death, and the reason is, that whatever your halachic definition of death is, the one unmistakable requirement is it be irreversible. That if someone goes into cardiac arrest and it's still potentially either auto-resuscitation or even if we could resuscitate it ourselves, that person is not dead halachically until it is impossible to resuscitate. Now, the problem is the non-heartbeating protocol doesn't, can't wait that long. If you wait that long, you lost it. So as a result, they kind of count to 10. I don't remember the exact, very, very few seconds. They count under a minute, and then they move in. Unfortunately, that's going to be murder under any definition. So in trying to avoid brain death, which is a suffix, a doubtful murder, they're doing something that's a definite murder. Okay, so the non-heartbeating protocol is not really halakhically acceptable. But as I say, if we can resuscitate with a dead heart, uh, that would be a wonderful, wonderful advance. One final question I want to leave you with, and that is, okay, halakhically, it is very problematical for me to donate my vital organ because that might be an act of murder, and I cannot allow murder to be committed. Question is, if I need an organ, can I put myself on a recipient list. Now, Rabbi Moshe Tendler has argued that that is fundamentally an unethical behavior. If you believe it is absolutely prohibited to donate an organ, then you cannot put yourself on the list to receive an organ. Again, there's a certain cogency to that argument. But let me give you the other side. The other side of the argument is the following. One of the major problems in organ donation is, of course, 
that the demand is much, much greater than the supply. So for every organ that's available, there might be, again, I'm going to make up a number, there might be 5, 10, 20 people that need it. Now, if I need an organ, but I don't put myself on the list because I don't believe it's permitted to donate an organ, I'm not going to be saving that person's life. It's simply going to go to another person. Meaning to say, the evil act, which we're defining by hypothesis, the removal of the organ, is going to take place with me or without me. I am not the cause of a murder. I am not causing this person to die. This person will die because somebody else on the list is going to take him. So here's the argument. Again, you can evaluate the argument. I'm just throwing it out for consideration. If I am not the cause of someone's death, the person's going to die whether I put myself on the list or not, there is no halachic principle that prohibits me from benefiting from an immoral act. Again, um, Dr. Reichman mentioned earlier today uh, a very interesting question about Nazi experimentation. It's very, very analogous uh, to this uh, issue, that in the 1930s, uh, when Jews were in concentration camps and the Nazis were performing hideous medical experiments, like hypothermia, putting people in ice-cold water, twins experiments, all of those things. They had the effantry to write up these experimentations in medical journals at the time in the, you know, in the name of science. Now, in the 1970s, some researchers had unearthed these old journals, and because they involved human experimentation that we could no longer do, no civilized society would do, they thought they would use the data to draw certain conclusions. Now, without getting into the question of whether it's valid science or not, that, 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 that I understand is the question, the question becomes, is it morally, ethically legitimate to look at the barbarisms of the concentration camps as a basis of scientific data? Now, some said that when something is evil, you cannot legitimate the evil by using it for something constructive. You must totally ignore it. You must consign it to oblivion, it must never see the night of day, the light of day. But some argued that halachically, if you're not causing the evil, the evil was done, the evil was done with you or without you, there is no rule that precludes a positive benefit from being derived. It's a bit of an analogy, and the analogy would be, in the organ context, that even if my position is it's wrong to give the organ, but if it's going to be taken with me without me, which is always going to be the case because of the demand being greater than the supply, I am permitted to, to receive. Again, these are difficult questions. Uh, ask your uh, Orthodox rabbi, but uh, these are things to think about. I guess that the main point I wanted to make, and again, many of you may have been familiar with this, is that the problem with organ donation is not autopsies, cremation, cutting into corpses, or resurrection of the dead. Those are not the problems. The problem is whether the donor is dead or alive. Because when you're dealing with murder, that is a very, very serious consideration. Okay, you don't take care and you'll be well.